Turn in your Bibles to uh, Second Peter, Second Peter, chapter two, and we will attempt to look at the entire chapter today in our study. As you think of persecution of believers, it can be hard and, and trying. Um, it can come in different forms. It can be physical in nature, but it can also be mental in nature. So it can be hard and trying. But what is even more deadly and ultimately devastating is a failing from within. You know, we've been learning so far that Peter's audience uh, for his first and second letters is the same. It's the same audience that he's writing to. They are believers. However, his themes are different. Uh, while in his first letter, he prepares his readers to face challenges, difficulties, and persecution from without, the persecution came, that is, from people who were clearly unbelievers. They were not a part of the visible church. In this second letter, we have been learning that Peter is preparing his readers for challenges from within. Here, the people are unbelievers too, but they call themselves believers. Those of you who have served in a military setting know this very well. There is that enemy that is known to all, uh, that is external to you that you're fighting. But many times the disastrous circumstances and situations are when you have an enemy from within the ranks. You know, an enemy from within can inflict a considerable amount of damage to you. Uh, why is it that an enemy from within can be so destructive and damaging? Well, because that is not where you're expecting opposition to come from. And because you're not expecting it, in some senses, you're not fully prepared for it. Uh, you're not ready for it. You're not armed for it. You can tend to be weak. And so Peter foresees this and such a circumstance and therefore has written the second letter. His intention for the original audience, which was in the first century AD, and his intention for us in the 21st century is the same. It is to equip them and it is to equip us with knowledge that will help us to distinguish, distinguish between true, authentic, genuine Christianity from false, inauthentic, and fake Christianity. Uh, that word knowledge, by the way, is used only four times outside of the Pauline epistles, uh, if you consider Hebrews also to be written by Paul. And all of those four times it's used in Second Peter. Uh, Peter wants to equip us with knowledge so that we are ready to fight this enemy from within. Here's a quick summary of each chapter. Uh, so good way to remember this. In chapter 1, his focus is on holiness, where the effort is on cultivation of the believers or Christian's character. Holiness. In chapter 2, which we will look at today, it's heresies. Uh, there's a condemnation of false teachers that we find in this chapter. And then chapter three, rightfully so, ends with hope as we confidently look forward to Christ's return. But going back to one of the outlines that Eric had shared with us in the first lesson on Second Peter, uh, what should we know in order to be ready and equipped for this enemy from within? Uh, in chapter one, verse one to verse 11, we have to know our salvation. Then chapter 1, verse 12 to 21, we are to know our scriptures. In chapter 2, we are to know our adversary. 
or adversaries. And then in chapter 3, we are to know our prophecy. That is, that we are to remember what the Bible says about the future, that day of our Lord when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. If we are equipped with true knowledge, if we are equipped with the truth, then we stand to be in the position to hold on to it. And then we're in a position to discern everything else that is not the truth. And so I've titled our lesson based on that outline, Know Your Adversary. Know Your Adversary. What is it that we should be aware of and know about our adversary? Well, that's what chapter 2 is about. Let's begin by looking at the first three verses together. Peter writes, The false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Uh, first of all, we learn the danger of false teachers, the danger of false teachers. Uh, what should we know about them? Well, first, under this heading, is that we need to know their existence and origin. You know, so far, Peter, as we look at Second Peter, has written about the true prophets and the true preachers of the Word of God. He started with the true Old Testament prophets. Peter now comes to the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and then he says, "Who were these were eyewitnesses to the life, the suffering, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he thinks in particular, as he even wrote in chapter 1, he thinks in particular of the circumstance of the transfiguration of the, G of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Uh, we, we saw him, we lived with him, we sat with him, we ate with him. From identifying and no knowing the true apostles, the true prophets, he shifts gear in chapter 2 now to turn to knowing the false representatives of God. Who are these false representatives of God? They're false prophets and false teachers. Now before we move forward, we need to know and define who false prophets are. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Notice what Moses records for us here. He says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods. These individuals are encouraging God's people to go after other gods. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. And you shall keep his commandment, commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. Ah, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. 
go down to chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Verse 20. He makes a contrast between a true prophet and a false prophet there. In verse 20, he records for us, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Here's a prophet. He says these things will happen in the future and it does not come to pass. That is a false prophet. Another speaks and encourages God's people to go after other gods. That's a false prophet. False prophets do exist. Uh, the false prophets proclaim false prophecies. Their focus is on the future. Uh, they are prophets and they use a legitimate office that God has created to proclaim his word, that of prophets, and they twist it to proclaim their own thoughts and not God's word. Then there are false teachers in verse 1. Uh, the focus of false teachers compared to false prophets is in the present. Uh, they take God's word and rather than exposit it and explain it, they make it say what they want it to say. Like someone has said, instead of doing exegesis, they do eisegesis. They do exist. But what are their origins? You know, in this chapter, Peter warns his readers, he warns them that these individuals in verse 1, he says, will arise from among you. Uh, these will be individuals who from their outward experience, they look like you, they talk like you. Uh, they will externally even agree with our doctrinal statement. But once they are in, they will begin to propagate and spread lies. They will come from among us, and that is why we must be prepared. That is their immediate origin. But we know from God's word, as you look at Genesis chapter 3, uh, that their father, Satan, has always been in existence in terms of deceiving God's people. And so first of all, their existence and their origin. Secondly, know their modus operandi. How, how do these false teachers work? Notice verse <coughs> 2. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. Rather, verse 1 at the end. Uh, there will also be false teachers, he says, among you who will secretly int introduce destructive heresies. Uh, it, it's not that they teach secretly, but the deceptive nature of their teaching is hidden. Uh, no, no false teacher claims that title for himself. It's not as if they come announcing, we are false teachers. No, that doesn't happen. But there is a deceptive strategy in play. Uh, just a uh, a small twist of a word here. Uh, that's not really what God meant. Uh, just a slight change in what God's word teaches. Uh, just a seemingly harmless compromise. And before you know it, they have moved from small twists, slight changes, and seemingly harmless compromises to outrightly denying the work of salvation that God has accomplished on our behalf. 
How do they operate? They op operate in a deceptive way. Thirdly, know their danger. Know their danger. Such people are known by their lifestyle. Verse 2, uh, their promiscuous lifestyle, their licentious living. Not only do they live in this way, but they influence others to follow them in this way. Uh, these individuals uh, perhaps claim to be followers of Christ. They claim to be Christians. They claim to be believers. But by their life, they deny Christ's lordship over their life. Uh, these are individuals uh, to whom Christ will one day say, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7, 23. Now such a lifestyle does not only violate the boundaries God has set, but notice at the end of verse 2, it also discredits the way of truth. And what is this way of truth? It's the gospel, isn't it? It's the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts, if you were there recently, you would remember that when people believed and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and repented of their sins, they were called people of the way. Uh, Acts 9, Acts 19, 22, and 24. Because they proclaim the way of salvation. When those who are not believers look at such individuals who call themselves Christians, but don't back it up with their life, uh, they speak lightly. They speak of God and his people and his ways in an insulting way. That's what it means to malign. And so the way of truth, the way of salvation is maligned because of these people. Not only is there a danger in their lifestyle, verse 3, it's also detected in their greed. Uh, their motivation is not love of God and love of truth, but their motivation is love of money. And based on that love, they deceive and try to gain from you and exploit you with false words. Uh, the false words are in direct contradiction to the true words spoken by the true prophets and the true teachers. Uh, is it any surprise that almost all of the false prophets and false teachers that we see today are exorbitantly rich and live lives that put on grand display the money that they possess? $20,000, $30,000 for a toilet seat. Now, I remember an uh, incident I read in Ian Murray's um, biography or John, John MacArthur. I think it's in the appendix, and I may have shared it with you earlier but it's a story that Tom, Pastor Tom actually shares happened with him and Pastor John and his wife. And apparently they were invited, John was invited to speak somewhere in the Midwest. And they had booked a, a pretty decent car, not exorbitant, like a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not a limousine or anything like that, just a normal car. But when they went to the rental car company, they didn't find that car and they ended up giving him a a limousine and so John was very hesitant to take that limousine because he was thinking what will the people who I'm going to minister to think about me and so he told Tom park the car a couple of blocks away from the church now here's a man <coughs> who is in ministry he is extraordinarily uh, concerned about what people will think about a car that doesn't even belong to him he, he, he didn't want even some sense of richness on his part to be seen. And not so with false teachers. What does Paul write to Timothy? He says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
money is not the root of evil. God has blessed some with extraordinary amount of money. But it is the love of money which is the root of evil. Uh, what then is the destiny of these prophet, prophets? We have to know their destiny. Peter, Peter actually mentions this throughout this chapter. Notice at the end of the first verse, he says, they are bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Uh, their judgment from long ago is not idle, verse 3. Uh, that is, it is not late or lingering. Their judgment will be on time. Uh, they will be judged and they will be judged on God's time and in God's way. Now, just in case we miss it, Peter emphasizes their destiny by telling us at the end of verse 3 that the destruction is not asleep. In fact, that is the title of John Piper's message on this particular chapter. Destruction is not asleep. Unlike the dead gods, they serve for always sleeping. The destructions these individuals will face is not asleep. It is their certain destiny. The biblical God is the God of truth. And because he is God of truth, he will judge and destroy all liars and deceivers. First of all, then, the danger of false teachers. Uh, Peter now moves to illustrating that truth of God's character to us. And in this next section, he shares three illustrations of divine judgments from the past that really serve as a warning and a, as a precedent for the future judgments. Uh, notice verse 4. It's, it's a one long Greek sentence, so I'm going to read it for you in English. Verse 4 to really verse 10 at the beginning, but for this part, we'll stop at verse 9. Verse 4. For if, notice the number of ifs. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Number 1. Number 2. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them, this is number three, to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. If, three times and then, then, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Uh, secondly, first of all, we see the danger of false teachers. Secondly, we see the destruction of false Teachers. Notice the number of illustrations that Paul, uh, that Peter gives us. First of all, is the illustration of the fallen angels, verse four. Now there are two possibilities of who these angels are. Uh, they might, they could be the angels that fell with Satan when he sinned. That would be Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, uh, when Satan sinned and God threw these angels along with Satan from heaven. The other possibility is Jude in his epistle, actually, which is very, very uh, uh, similar to this particular chapter in Second Peter, may, uh, is probably implying in verse 6 that these could be the angels that are mentioned in Genesis 6. Uh, as you know, they are mentioned as the sons of God. 
uh, in Jude 6, he says, they did not keep their domain and abandon their proper abode. So perhaps Jude has those in mind. What happened to those angels? Notice verse 4. God did not spare them. He cast them into hell and they are now awaiting their final judgment. I don't have a strong opinion on either of those possibilities. If I had to lean one way, it would be perhaps the, the, the dispelling of the fallen angels along with Satan. But regardless of the two views that are in picture here, what is absolutely clear is that these fallen angels have faced and will face consequences for their actions. God, in other words, the bottom line is this, God is faithful in judging false prophets, fallen angels here. Peter uses the word actually in verse 4 for hell. Uh, uh, it's a Greek word used in Greek mythology to describe a place that was reserved for those who were most wicked, both men and angels. And there were many Jews in that time who began using the same word. It describes really a temporary destiny of these fallen angels. God has cast them into hell, he says, and there they are in the pits of darkness. This was a location that these fallen angels came to occupy temporarily as they waited their final sentence and its eventual destiny. The destruction of false teachers, illustration number one. Secondly, illustration number two, the ancient world, verse five, and Noah. Uh, this is the second illustration he gives. Now, his intention is to show that those who are false and those who are liars and deceivers, they will face judgment. Look at history. Look at what is mentioned in the Bible already. That's why he's mentioning these illustrations. It's, a, it's an illustration, it's the second one, of God's judgment. It's a worldwide flood that was unleashed by God in Genesis 6 to 8. The flood itself, we are told, was a result of the great wickedness of man. One of the most distinct summaries of depravity of man is Genesis 6, verse 5. It says, Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And so the judgment of God was poured out on this ancient world, and only eight individuals were saved through that and spared. Now, there are some estimates of what the population might have been during that time. Uh, they range from 750 million people to even as close as 100 plus billion. Now right now, our world's population is 8 billion. Even if we go with the lowest number, imagine the scale of the damage and death that occurred during this particular judgment. It's an astounding number of people who faced God's judgment in the flood. But there's another illustration, and that is of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6 to verse Nine. This is the final illustration that Peter shares. comes to us from Genesis 18 to Genesis 19. A similar description of those who died in the flood is given here. They were ungodly people. They were ungodly individuals. That is, they were unrighteous and sinful, and they did not live a God-honoring life. Uh, now, while, he used, while God used water in the previous judgment, here he uses fire and brimstone to bring destruction to Sodom and Gomorrah and everyone who occupied those two locations and three other cities that were destroyed along with it. Now, he did that to make an example to those who would live ungodly lives. Now, they're not only called ungodly, but they're also described as in <coughs> beings involved in sensual conduct. 
they uh, they lived sensuously. They lived. Uh, they're called unprincipled men. Notice verse seven: unprincipled men, men with no principles. Really, those who violate the law of nature and conscience. Those are unprincipled men. And by pouring fire and brimstone on them, God was sending a message to future generations, generations including the ones that we exist now. This was a clear call, a clear and a distinct message from God. If you live wickedly and make wicked choices, you will face God's judgment. But was it all gloom and doom for everyone? No. Verse 9, notice what he says. If he did all of those things, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. In the middle of those verses is a glimpse of hope for those who did not face God's judgment. Uh, here too, there are three examples that he gives. There were angels who sinned, and there were angels who did not sin. And these angels, remember, they continued to serve the Lord. We have so many illustrations of that throughout the scriptures. Uh, think of the angels who came and visited uh, Mary and Joseph, angels who visited the shepherd just outside of Bethlehem, angels who were in the garden, angels who existed at the ascension of our Lord. And so we have the good God-honoring angels as much as we have the fallen angels. But not only that, we have Noah who faithfully preached the message of God. He was a preacher of righteousness, it's called here. Uh, along with him and his wife and his sons and their wives, God delivered them. Can you imagine preaching the same message for 120 years? Uh, Noah did that. He was a faithful preacher. And then we have the example of Lot, a nephew of Abraham, who is described here just like Noah as a righteous man. For the first time in this chapter, we see a life, we see the life he lived while, while he was in Sodom. When you read Genesis, you don't get a sense of the righteousness of Lot. Uh, perhaps there are some glimpses, you know, when, he, uh, when he's hospitable to these angels, when he invites them home, you get a sense that uh, he's, a, he's a good man, but we, we don't see him described in that way. But here, for the first time, he is described as a righteous man. Verse 8. As he witnessed in his society, he felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by the lawless deeds that he saw around him. But why does Peter give all of these examples? Here's why. If God preserved and rescued angels and Noah and Lot and his two daughters and Noah's family, in the midst of the wrath that was unleashed, if he did that then, the logic is that he was fully capable of doing that again. And two things are for sure. Firstly, the false teachers will face judgment in the future, just like the fallen angels, just like the ungodly men during Noah's time, and just like the ungodly and unprincipled men during Lot's time. Their temporary status as a recipient of God's judgment will one day become permanent. Uh, their judgment is described in Revelation 20 verse, one to, uh, verse 11 to 15 where we see the great white throne judgment. Where all the ungodly and the unprincipled will be raised and then they will be judged and then they will be cast into the lake of fire. Well, that's, that's one thing. Their judgment is sure. But secondly, in the midst of an outpouring of the judgment of God, we see a God who is still in control of everything and is fully capable of preserving and rescuing those who are his. 
Those who have placed their trust in Christ alone will never face the judgment and wrath of God. Uh, before we leave this particular section, notice what it says and does not say in verse 9. Uh, it does say the Lord knows how to rescue what, uh, how to rescue the godly from temptation. It does not say the Lord will always rescue. Now, that is to say that that is not a guarantee that no harm will come to the believer while he or she is in the world. But we know from the rest of the scriptures that a believer does face discipline from God, Hebrews chapter 12. However, he or she will not face the wrath and judgment of God. Why? Because his son uh, took it on your behalf and mine. So the destruction of false teachers is certain and sure. It's not a question of if they will be judged, but when they will be judged. Uh, danger of false teachers, a destruction of false teachers, and thirdly and finally, the description of false teachers. I won't read the entire section, but you want to have your Bible handy because we will walk through each description that is mentioned of these false teachers as we look at it, I further divided it to help us understand better. First of all, we see a focus on their attitude, verse 10 to verse 13, to the beginning portion. It can be described as a brazen arrogance, a brazen arrogance. You know, similar to the times of Noah and Lot, the false teachers were slaves to the sinful and corrupt inclinations of their hearts. Uh, they indulged the flesh and its corrupt desires. Outwardly, they called themselves Christians, and they even called Jesus Christ as their Lord, uh, but they do not live under his lordship. Uh, they're marked by lust and arrogance. Notice verse 10. Uh, their arrogance is seen in a rejection of authority. They despise authority. The, that first portion at the end of verse, uh, verse 10, at the beginning of verse 10. You know, one of the tragedies of uh, watching the family breakdown in our culture is the fact that our children grow up without an authority. Uh, that is not only true where a father is missing, but it's also true where a father is there but doesn't fulfill his role of a father. Uh, this is a tragedy because the family is where image bearers of God first learn what authority is. As a culture, then, there is a despising, a contempt for any authority. Uh, the attitude of repugnance towards authority is then displayed towards God, who is the ultimate authority. Uh, notice what else he writes here at the end of verse 10. They are daring, that is, they are audacious and they are defiant. Uh, they are self-willed, that is, they are obstinate and stubborn in their evil and wicked ways. Uh, they are determined to go in the wrong way. There is no fear uh, there is no trembling in these false teachers, even when they blaspheme against, notice verse 10 at the end, they revile angelic majesties. Uh, they do not speak in a reviling way against any authority. Uh, rather, they speak in a reviling way against all authorities. They are so arrogant and so, so defiant that they don't hesitate to show disregard for authority even to someone who is a part of their own team. Notice in comparison to these false teachers, verse 11 talks about other kinds of angels. Uh, this, these are the holy angels, the angels who are greater and in might and power. Notice what they say, 
so respect and honor God. Uh, they do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. A commentator wrote, perhaps Peter is thinking here of what Jude mentions in his letter. In Jude verse 9, it says, Michael the archangel, when he disputed with devil, that is Satan, and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Uh, Michael didn't say anything directly to the devil, but he said to the devil, the Lord rebuke you. He left judgment to God. Now, a quick application here before we move on. It is the false teacher who is brazenly arrogant. They don't regard or have any respect for authority in comparison to someone who is a true teacher. We as believers should not follow in their path when it comes to ridiculing or insulting Satan or his minions. That's the application there. If Michael the archangel thought it best to leave the Lord to rebuke Satan, it would be bold foolishness on our part to mock or belittle Satan in our own strength. But that's what the false teachers do. In their brazen arrogance, verse 12, we are told they're like unreasoning animals. Uh, they show a complete lack of respect and regard for anything that is supernatural, acting not on reason, it says, but on instinct. Uh, Feelings is the basis of their action, not reason. Making statements and insulting things and individuals about whom they don't have knowledge or understanding of. And they're destroyed just like beasts are destroyed at the end of verse 12. Verse 13 tells us that they will face the consequences of their attitude. They'll suffer wrong as the wages of doing wrong. And they have denied that God will judge and the irony now uh, it, it, they have denied rather that God will ever judge and the irony now is that the same thing that they have denied for a long time they will face themselves they deny that God will ever judge but God will one day judge them verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13 uh, that is their attitude a brazen arrogance but secondly notice their actions verse 13 the end it's marked by deception. It's marked by deception. Their attitude finds its outcome in their actions. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They do with pleasure in daytime what is considered wicked and sinful even in the nighttime. You know, societies throughout the world have remained civil, even in utter sinfulness, to act on their sinfulness in the night. But the false teachers on the other hand, are so haughty and conceited, here it says, that they do in full light what is considered sinful even in darkness. And because they're so engrossed and preoccupied with their sin and their wicked lifestyle, that they are not even patient to wait for the night to come. Or they want to do sinful acts and wicked, act, wicked acts in the daytime. They're captivated, verse 13 at the end, and then verse 14, they are captivated by their adulterous passions. Uh, they are deceivers, they are stains and blemishes, which is in direct opposition to how a follower of Christ must be. Why? Because Christ himself, our Lord, is one without stain and a, and a blemish. Uh, but these individuals, they revel in that. Notice verse 13 at the end, they have a corrupting presence in the body, 
of Christ and not only deceive others, they also deceive themselves. They continue in their deceptions even as they're carousing with you. End of verse 13. You know, uh, apart from the NASB, almost all of the good translations, uh, conservative evangelical translations, translate that word as, as feast, which is, which is really a more accurate translation. Wh why is that a more accurate translation? Well, the feast in view is, of course, the Lord's Supper. And the implication of that is even what is supposed to be a solemn and a holy occasion of Christian fellowship, that is worshiping God by remembering his son, by partaking of the bread and the supper, even that occasion is not spared by these false teachers to put on display their deception. That's in end of verse 13. Verse 14 tells us they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Uh, they go after unsuspecting and unstable souls. They, they know who to target. They're looking for that weak link in the chain. Uh, that immature believer who can be easily deceived. Their actions are not half as hard. Notice verse 14, it talks about being prepared and trained. Having a heart trained in greed. Uh, things that are forbidden. They are accursed. That is, they are damned to hell for their actions. Uh, these are false teachers and false prophets. They, they sin in the day. They deceive. They entice. Verse 15, and they forsake the way of God. What is the way of, the God, way of God? It's the right way. Uh, whose way have they gone, rather? Notice verse 15. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam. Remember the story of Balaam, Numbers 22 to 25, 22 to 24 in particular. Remember this was a, a false uh, prophet. He loved the wages of wickedness. He tried unsuccessfully to prophesy against God's people. And he took money from this Moabite king called Balak uh, to prophesy against the Israelites when they did, when, uh, to prophesy against God's people, the Israelites. And when th that didn't work out, he gave a suggestion to this Moabite king to weaken the Israelites through seduction, using uh, Moabite and uh, Midianite women to tempt the Israelites to sexual relationships, into pagan rituals, and so on. And the Israelites who participated in that drew upon themselves God's judgment. That was Balaam's way. It was to promote falsehood for financial reasons. He used the gift God had given him, the gift of prophecy, and misused it. And even here we see God acting and displaying his sovereignty and control. What did he do? He restrained Balaam by having his donkey speak with him. You know, we see in Second Peter throughout this particular chapter, when we see false teachers, we also see God's judgment just lurking around the corner. Their attitude, their actions, thirdly, their speech. Verse 17 to verse 19. They promise everything, but deliver nothing. Uh, th their, their words are hollow in that sense. Notice verse 17. These are springs without water and mists driven by, the storm, by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. 
Uh, firstly, Peter begins by using two expressions that describe the speech of these false teachers. And both those figures have high relevance in the Middle Eastern part of the world. Uh, first of all, he says, a spring. Uh, what is a spring in the Middle Eastern desert? It's, it's a well. It's an oasis. It's, it's a place where water is found. It's a place where there's joy and life in the middle of a desert. You know, beaten down by the hot sun, people came to the springs to satisfy their thirst. But there's also mists. What are these mists? Uh, they're dark clouds uh, that come ahead of the rain. So you see mists and you expect rain to follow immediately. You know that water is coming. But he says these are springs without water. And these are mists that are driven away by storms. They promise everything, in other words, but they deliver nothing. They build this anticipation of things, but there's no results to show for it. Uh, the false teachers promise much. They act as if they are spiritually rich, but when you truly try to understand them, when you come close to them, they come up empty. They really have nothing of substance to offer. Uh, secondly, they are having arrogant words of vanity, verse 18. They are grandiose and very verbose in, in their talk. They use words that sound great and grand, and they portray themselves as scholars and high thinkers and very intelligent people. After they're done speaking, you look at each other and you say, what did they mean? I wonder what they meant. So when it comes to enticing and baiting someone, their focus, though, is on sensuality. Notice verse 18. By fleshly desires, by sensuality. They don't win, win people over by godly character, but they win people over or try to win people over by appealing to their fleshly desires, their base desires. You know, these false teachers, they create an atmosphere where people can do their religious thing and still cling to their sinful lifestyle. <coughs> I was part of a church that I knew, uh, a church in the city that I was a part of. There was a church there, a huge church, and it was so huge uh, that one of their deacons was missing for six months, but none of the leadership knew that. Uh, th there is a grandness to, to things. Uh, there are people who can do their religious thing and still cling to their sinful lifestyle. If a deacon is missing and not known in the church, you can imagine for the people who are coming to listen to God's word being taught or not. I it's like having your religious cake and eating it too. But there are also other things. Notice thirdly, verse 19. These are individuals and ideas where freedom and liberty is promised, verse 19, while they themselves who teach these things are enslaved to corruption. Uh, they don't want Jesus as their Lord and Master because they say they don't want to be enslaved to anyone. But what they don't realize is that in denying Jesus as their Lord, they end up putting themselves in that position and so end up being enslaved to their sin. You know, earlier we talked about financial riches. Apart from financial riches, another thing that you'll find most common amongst false teachers is that they're excellent in their communication skills. They're very slick communicators. The focus is never on the character. The focus is never on what God's word commands and calls us to do. 
but their focus is on how well they communicate. If you go to a church and all that you come away with is how good the communication was, chances are that it's a church that holds false teachers. There's no mention of sin. Uh, there's no focus on changed life. You know, you, you know you're influenced by false teachers when you come to a so-called church and not feel a tinge of guilt of your sinful and sensual lifestyle. Uh, you know you're influenced by false teachers and false teaching. When you come to a church on a Sunday, you think you've paid your religious dues and then go back and live like the rest of the pagan world. You see, the false teachers, they promise everything and they deliver nothing. Their attitude, their actions, their speech, fourthly and finally, their identity, or rather their true identity. It is something that will not remain hidden. Notice with me verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wa wallowing in the mire. <coughs> and at some point of time, they have escaped these defilements of the world. They realize the exhaustion and the filth and ungodliness that sin has to offer. And they move away from that and they turn to religion. That's what verse 20 is talking about. These people are the ones who show that they are repentant because they realize that the world does not really offer anything of substance. Uh, or they are repentant because they have been caught in sin. But they're not repentant because they have sinned against a holy God. They're not repentant because they have offended a God and broken his laws. You know, such people make a number or have made a number of professions of their faith. They deceive themselves, though, into thinking that they are believers, but they are really not. False teachers and false prophets. They come to Jesus not because they want to place their faith and trust in him, but they come to him so that he would affirm them in the choices that they have made and are making. They've heard the gospel, verse 21. They know the consequences of their sin. And in that sense, they, they have known the way of righteousness. And therefore, having known the way of righteousness compared to before, where they did not know the way of righteousness, now they will be held accountable for what they know. And the damning thing here is, as you read verse 22 and 21, you realize that these individuals described here are not outside the church, but they're in it. They're in the visible local church. They hear the gospel every week. They have access to the truth of God's word, but by how they live, they're really demonstrating that they've rejected the lordship of Christ over their life. They reject the truth and then turn around and then they entice others to follow in their footsteps. But notice verse 3, eventually it will become clear where actually these false teachers stand. And so as Peter draws this section to a close, notice he uses two proverbs to inform us of their true identity of these false teachers. First of all, he says, a dog returns to its own vomit, directly quoting from Proverbs 26, 
And to help us understand the meaning, we have to remember that dogs in the ancient Middle East were viewed very di differently from the way they are viewed today. Uh, we tend to think of dogs as pets, domesticated animals. But in the first century and even before that, they, they were objects of hatred and they were despised. They, they were considered as unclean animals. They would live filthy and despicable lives. And here uh, it says they, they vomit and then go back to the place where they had vomited, returning to its warmest at what these unclean animals did. That was in its very nature. But to understand this Proverbs, let me quote the entire verse to you from Proverbs 26, 11. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And so what Peter means when he says this is just like a dog returning to its vomit, he means the false teachers similarly would go back to living in sin. Because that is their very nature. He wants us to feel the filth and the disgust as we think about that. A dog returning to its vomit, that, that, that's its very nature. And so are these false teachers returning to their own sinful lifestyle. For a few moments, for a few weeks, a few months, they might be able to deceive some, but they go back to living the same kind of life that they were living before. And secondly, he says, a sow, after washing, returns to its wallowing in the mire. What is this? It's, it's not a proverb from the book of Proverbs, but it's something that Peter wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it says, it does not matter how much you wash and clean this pig uh, from on the outside. At the end of the day, it will go back to wallowing in the mire. That is the very nature of what a pig is. In the same way, the false teachers will go back to their sinful and sensual lifestyle no matter how many times you've cleaned them on the outside or have they have cleaned themselves on the outside. Their attitude, uh, one of brazen arrogance, their actions marked by deception, their speech, they promise everything but deliver nothing. Their identity is something that will not remain hidden. That brings us really to what do we do with this text? How do we apply this even today? Perhaps there's a somber uh, or a serious atmosphere right now, but the reality is that we face this danger of false teachers and false prophets every day. If you have a chance, read Paul's uh, last meeting with the elders of Ephesus. Uh, I think it's Acts 19 and, and 20. Uh, he earnestly pleads with them as he informs them, continues to teach them that after his departure, wolves will come and they will try to destroy. So the, the existence of false teachers and false prophets is a reality. How do we equip ourselves. Well, first of all, we are to be alert. We are to be on guard against false teachers. Know that they will come. Uh, it's a danger that every body of Christ faces. Uh, therefore, uh, here we try as much as, we, as is humanly possible to be able to guard ourselves against it. There is a process we have of putting someone up to teach. Uh, there's a process we have, even as you witnessed in the morning, of putting someone in the elder position. This is not someone who is just taken and put haphazardly uh, without any knowledge. No, they have been a part of this church. They have taught for a number of years. They have faithfully demonstrated uh, the character of an elder, and then they are put. 
uh, but we are to be on alert. We are to be on guard. We are to expect false teachers. But how would you know what is a false teacher's false teacher or false prophet is. We have to be equipped. We have to be armed. We have to be rooted in and grounded in God's word. That's, isn't that what we learned in chapter 1? Going back to Deuteronomy 13 and 18, how would they know that this is not God's word unless they know what God's word is actually? How would you defend against false teachers? By equipping yourself, by being armed with God's word. Perhaps every one of us approaches God's word in terms of how we study it differently. Uh, perhaps you read large swaths of scriptures every day. It's like bathing in God's word. Or perhaps you take a small portion of God's word and then go deep into it. We want both the approaches. We want to read large swaths of scriptures, but we also want to go deep into perhaps a paragraph of God's word. Uh, you, if, you don't, if you're not in the practice of doing that, Perhaps once or twice is a good way to start it. Take, take a paragraph, and if you have the NASB, it's neatly divided for you. Take a paragraph and go deep into it. Look at the study Bibles that we have. We are spoiled for choices when it comes to resources that we have to understand God's Word. So many free websites that give so much that we have no reason not to study God's Word. How do you respond to false teachers? You know, to be, not only be alert, but you be armed, make sure you are in God's word. Uh, thirdly, we are assured of the fact that God will unleash his judgment against false teachers. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, God says. We have to call out when we hear or see false teachers and false prophets, but we have to be assured that God will unleash his judgment on these false teachers and false prophets. Uh, fourthly, just to go with the A's there, all live all of your life under the Lordship of Christ. Perhaps you haven't thought about this in a structured way. You know, think about what areas of your life is God's word speaking into. Or perhaps you say to yourself, I'm really not so good and so disciplined in certain areas. Or perhaps you're faced with laziness. Or perhaps you are... Uh, one who postpones things. Uh, perhaps you are faced with anger issues. Whatever it is that you are uh, facing as a sin issue, you take that and you say, how can I bring it under the Lordship of Christ? If I, I call Christ my Lord, uh, does this do justice to, the, to, to, to who he is and to how I call myself a, a Christian? You take a sin and you attack it and you go behind it and you kill it. And then another one comes up. And that process begins again as long as we are in the flesh. And as you do that, day by day, moment by moment, you're becoming more like Christ. Uh, your God is never down as you try to bring all aspects of your life under the Lordship of Christ. In a group such as this, I don't want to assume that all of us are believers here. Perhaps everything that I've shared, you're like, why is this individual so serious and screaming at the top of his voice and warning people of false teachers. I don't see anything here. Or perhaps you're not sure where you stand in comparison to Christ. Well, I would say God's word calls you to repent and believe 
in the one, as Peter mentions here, the one who bought you with his blood. Call out to him before it is too late. Trust in him and follow him as the Lord of your life. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word, uh, this clarion call, this clear call in our life to know that in these times, false teachers and false prophets will arise among us, help us to be alert to their existence. Not only that, help us to be armed and equipped with your word so that we can identify those who don't teach your word. Equip us, arm us with it. As we spend time in it, help us to identify areas in our own life. Even as we see the sensual and the wicked and the evil and sinful lifestyle that these false teachers and false prophets are marked with, how opposite to it must our life be? And so we ask for your help. We were reminded even in the morning in the worship center that when we ask according to your will, that you hear and that you answer. Lord, it's our desire that we live sanctified lives. Your will for us is our sanctification. And so we desire to live sanctified lives. We desire to bring all aspects of our life under the Lordship of Christ. Lord, we must put all efforts on our part and yet realize that it is you who help us be what you've called us to be. And so we ask for your help. We ask that you would guide us, that you would equip us, that we, that we would bring all the aspects of our life under your Lordship. Thank you for our time in the study of your word. May this week be uh, one where we get to display these things that we are learning. I thank you once again for your word. Thank you for the gift of your son through whom we have salvation and in whose name we pray even now. Amen.